Romans chapter 2. We'll continue again this morning in our study from the book of Romans, an expository study. Uh, we've been in this for quite a while now. This is the 12th lesson, and uh, I reckon we'll probably be in it for quite a while still yet. Amen. I anticipate, and I, I don't have it all measured out or mapped out, but I anticipate we're going to be here most of the year, if not all year, this year studying through the book of Romans. Amen. I believe there's a lot of power, a lot of revelation, a lot of life-changing impact in taking the time to really read the Word of God for understanding. Amen. We get in our Bible reading programs, and we're trying to read a certain number of pages in a certain number of days just as fast as we can, and sometimes we miss the real thrust, the real message of what's being said because we read it in such large portions, such large. but what we're doing here is we're taking a few verses at a time, and we're just trying to dissect them and open them up. This morning we'll be in Romans chapter 2. We'll begin in verse... Uh, verse 12 and we're going to finish in verse 16 and it's just a short segment but it's again opening it up and understanding it now for the last several weeks we've been working our way through chapter 2 through this first segment of chapter 2 and this segment verses 1 through 16 presents to us several principles of divine judgment and the first one was presented a couple of weeks ago when we said that God's judgment is according to truth God doesn't judge like we judge. We judge, our judgments are based on our shallow, self-righteous justifications and rationalizations. The way of a man seemeth right to a man, and a man can justify just about anything he wants to do. But God doesn't judge based on your justifications. God doesn't judge based on your self-righteousness. God judges based on truth, his truth, that unchanging truth. That forever settled truth. That's what God will judge based on. The second point that we made was the main thrust of last week's passage. God will judge every person according to what he's done. God's judgments will be according to deeds. A profession of faith will never take the place of the kind of life that should be produced by faith. God will not judge you on the basis of what you say you believe. God will judge you on the basis of what you do with what you believe. Amen? So in the end, it matters what we do. It matters how we live. The third thing was that God's judgment will be impartial. The final principle of last week's lesson was that God's judgments are Impartial. God is no respecter of persons. He will judge all men equally. Race, creed, heritage, position, national allegiance, your educational level, how much money you got in the bank, none of that matters to God. God's going to judge every man equally on the basis of what they've done, not the basis of who they are. Amen? The fourth and fifth principles are presented in this morning's passage. The fourth one reinforces the point that Paul made in the very first chapter of Romans. The Gentiles didn't have the law, but that didn't spare them from the judgment of God. They were accountable for the knowledge of God that they should have had based on their personal revelation. It didn't matter 
that they didn't have a knowledge of the law of Moses. It only mattered that they should have known that there was a God on the basis of nature itself that demonstrated to them that there was a God. So that God will judge all sinners. God, if they didn't have the law, then God's not going to judge them based on the law. He'll judge them for sinning against the truth that they did have. They should have known there was a God. Just nature itself evidenced the fact that there was a God, and so they should have known. Likewise, those who had the law will be judged on the basis of their disobedience of the law. So the fourth principle is this. God will not judge you by a standard you don't have. But God will judge you on the basis of the standard you do have. And under that simple principle, all men are guilty. That was the message we got in Romans chapter 1. It will be reinforced again today, beginning in verse 12. Let's read the whole passage, and then we'll break it up. It says, For as many as have sinned without law shall also, also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. But when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. That's the passage that we have before us this morning beginning with verse 12 which said, For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. As many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. The point Paul is making here is it does not matter whether people have received the law or not. All of them are under condemnation. It may be impossible to accuse a Gentile of breaking the law if he has no knowledge of the law. But the fact remains that the Gentile knows the difference between right and wrong. Whether he has the law of Moses or not, he knows the difference between right and wrong. A standard of right and wrong has been written on the heart of man. Every man has a basic conscience of what is right and what is wrong. And because of that, he's guilty when he does wrong. It doesn't matter if he knows the law of God. He's guilty because he knew what right was and he knew what wrong was and he chose wrong. The Gentile will not be automatically saved because he never had the law. He's not going to be automatically saved because he didn't know he was transgressing God's law because he transgressed the law that was written on his heart. He knew certain things were wrong, and he went ahead and did them. Likewise, the Jew who had the law, and remember this, this chapter is building up. Paul is addressing the Jewish antagonist that, that he perceives responding to his first chapter exposition on the Gentile. That, so the point that's building here is that the Jew who had the law cannot claim that he is automatically saved because he had the law. That, that's the point because God, God, just because God gave them the law does not mean they're saved by the law if they haven't kept the law. 
if they haven't obeyed the law, they're still guilty of the law. Just as if the Gentile is guilty of the law, not even ever had the law, then the Jew that had the law and didn't obey the law is just as guilty of the law. Does that make sense? Both are guilty. Both are condemned because of the law. That's the general thrust of today's passage. Those who sin will suffer the consequences of sin regardless of whether or not they knew the law of God. Now, this arrogant Jew that Paul is responding to may think that mere possession of the law equates to eternal security. He may think that because he was privileged of God, chosen by God, he has the law of God, that somehow that exempts him from the judgment of God. But what Paul is declaring to him is that the law means judgment. Because he has the law, he is going to be judged by the law. Paul's purpose is to undercut the position of that arrogant Jew who's counting on his limited obedience to the law for acceptance with God. Because he had the law and because he's fulfilled some of the law, he feels like he's going to be accepted by God. But what Paul is saying is your compliance to the law would have had to have been perfect. You would have had to have performed and fulfilled every point of the law to perfection if you were going to be declared righteous, be declared righteous by God on the basis of the law. And that arrogant Jew hasn't done that. No man has done that. So all men will be judged according to the response to the revelation that God has given them. The Gentiles have not been given the law. Therefore, they're not going to be judged by the law. But they will be judged by the truth that they do have. And because they've not acted in accordance with that truth, because they've not acted in accordance with the knowledge of God that was demonstrated to them In nature, they will be condemned. All men are going to be measured by the same truth. All men are going to be measured by that truth that was presented to them that all men should have known. So the Jews have the law, and they're tempted to say that just because they have the law, even if they sin, that they're saved because they had the law. But Paul tells them if they've not kept the law, then the law is going to condemn them because not not just because they of what they've done, but because of their knowledge, because it doesn't really matter that they had the law. It matters whether or not they fulfilled the law. It matters whether or not they did. Men are going to be judged not on the basis of the profession, not on the basis of what they know about God. They're going to be judged on the basis of what they did, what they performed, what they've done. Sin involves doing. And all men are going to be judged on the basis of sin. Amen? Verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. And this passage emphasizes that it's not just those that hear and know the law who will be justified, but it's those who actually perform what is required of them by the law. We're dealing with the law very specifically in these passages of Scripture because Paul's answering this Jewish antagonist who thinks that because he has the law, he's exempt. And so Paul's pointing out the law is not saving you just because you have it. To have been saved by the law, you would have had to fulfill it in every point, in every way. You would have had to have been perfect 
in the law. So those who have the law are held accountable for performing what was required of them by the law. So once again, we establish the fact that God will judge and God will base judgment on the reality of performance. Not just on what we know, not just on what we have, not just on what we possess, not just on what we profess to be, but on the basis of what we do. Actions speak louder than words. It's more than just a cliche. And Paul is making it clear that the Jew cannot depend on his privileged position as the chosen people of God, the the inheritors of the law of Moses, the protectors of that law, those people who have the knowledge that there's one God. That knowledge isn't enough to save them. My friend, you can memorize Acts 2.38. You can have it, the, 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 the plan of salvation nailed down. You can know every scripture in the Bible that pertains to the holiness of God. But if you don't live it, It doesn't save you to know it. It doesn't save you even to understand it. It has to affect the way that you live. So this Jew, this antagonist, if he is relying on the law as his way of salvation, then his concern has to be with keeping the law because it matters what you do. Verse 14, when the Gentiles... For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. The Gentiles, those that did not have the law, those that were condemned in chapter 1, they're going to be judged on the basis of the law of conscience. Every society on earth, every group of humans that ever lived has some concept of morality all men have a basic knowledge of good and evil since man was created in god's image he retains within him a degree an instinctive understanding an instinctive sense of morality we call that conscience He has a conscience. He understands there's a basic difference between right and wrong. There's a basic difference between good and bad. And those basic truths are the same across every segment of human history. It doesn't matter the language spoken. It doesn't matter the culture. It's always been wrong to murder. It's always been wrong to dishonor your mother and your father. These are principles of the law. It's always been wrong to take that which doesn't belong to you. Nobody had to stand and say it's written in tablets of stone because it was written in the tablet of the heart. Every man who's ever lived knows. Even among thieves, there's a sense of honor. You don't take. You may take from others, but you don't take from other thieves. You don't take what's not yours. It's a simple, basic understanding. There's a difference between right and wrong. It's built into the heart of man. And so what Paul is saying is these Gentiles, they didn't have the law. They didn't have the benefit of of having the instructions of Moses. They didn't have the benefit of reading the book of Leviticus and all the thou shalt nots. They didn't have all the thou shalt nots. But guess what? They honored their father and mother. It, It just was something that came natural to them 
They didn't have the thou shalt not steal. But guess what? They understood that you don't take that which doesn't belong. It just came to them naturally. It was written in the law of their heart. They did these things by nature. Not because they were trying to obey the law. Not because they were trying to fulfill the commandments of Moses. They can't be obeying the law. They don't have the law. What they're obeying is their conscience. God placed within the heart of every man, woman, child, every individual ever born a certain sense, a certain knowledge. Psychologists say that our children are pre-programmed to know the difference between right and wrong. And by the age of two, they've developed a conscience. They developed an understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Now, that understanding is shaped and framed by their life experience. Mommy and Daddy help teach them what is good and acceptable and what is not. But they're pre-programmed to have that understanding. There is a right and there is a wrong. It was written in the heart. So Paul's point is that the Gentiles know enough to know that this is the kind of thing they ought to do. They may not know, thou shalt not have no other, there's only one God, and thou shalt have no other God before him. But they know, thou shalt not kill. They know, thou shalt not steal. They know it's not good to covet that which doesn't belong to you. They understand these very basic things. They had enough knowledge of the kind of things that they ought to do that they're guilty under that simple knowledge of what they should have done. They're not consciously fulfilling the law, but nevertheless, they're keeping some of the law's provisions. That truth that was written on their heart has become a law to them, and they're guilty for transgressing that law. Verse 15 says, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. The works of the law, the requirements of the law, are to some extent, like I've said, written on the heart of every person, that, that conscience. And that conscience will stand as a witness against every individual. The instinctive teaching of conscience causes him to think about his actions. And his conscience causes him to either his conscience will either accuse him or it will defend him man does what man does and then man rationalizes the right and wrong of what he's done that rational process that's what paul is talking about when he talks about their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another if his thoughts accuse him if man does something and his inner heart accuses him, you've done wrong. Then by, the, by that very rationalization, that process that takes place in his mind, he acknowledges guilt for violating the law. That, rational, that need to rationalize, that understanding, oh my, I, this, this may not, but, 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 you know, yeah, I did wrong to him, but he did wrong to me too. That process of rationalization recognizes the law. By the same token, then, if his thoughts defend him, if he finds himself saying, well, you know, it's not so bad because, bless God, he wronged me first. She started it. 
you know, they, they struck the first blow. Well, I'm not all that bad because Johnny, he does worse than I do. That process of defending yourself on the basis of self-rationalization acknowledges the need that you need to justify yourself because you see the law, because you understand that you've done wrong. So what Paul is saying is that that conscious process by which men begin to rationalize their actions is in and of itself indication that they understand the law. Whenever you've got, listen, whenever you've got to take the time to rationalize, to make it okay that you're doing something, you better back up and consider what you're doing because the process of rationalization is the understanding that you're crossing a line that was written in your heart. When you've got to take the time to begin to reason out, well, this is okay because, before you get past the word because, you need to stop and understand what just happened. Your heart is recognizing the fact that there is a law, there is a standard, there is a right and a wrong that is being violated. That's what Paul said. Their thoughts accuse them or they excuse them. But somewhere in that conscience and reason that, that rationalization, they establish their guilt according to moral law. They knew right, even if they did wrong. No man's going to stand before God and say, well, it's okay that I murdered my mom and dad because they molested me when I was a kid. There's no rationalization that's going to excuse you from the law of God. When you get to the point of rationalization, when you get to that point, you've already accepted the fact that you transgressed the law, that you transgressed righteousness. So although conscience alone is not sufficient to instruct us in the will of God, conscience doesn't teach us the worship of God. It doesn't dictate to us that there's only one God and that we should set no other God before him. Conscience alone will not lead us to the fullness of truth, but conscience alone will condemn us. And that's the point with the Gentiles. Conscience alone is enough to, to dictate to them some of God's will, some of God's law, and to bring them under the guilt of having transgressed that. Even the worst sinner has some degree of knowledge of right and wrong. If a preacher never stands to them and preaches the cross, they still have some degree of knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. The point here is that those who have no specific revelation of the will of God still have the law of conscience and they will still be judged for disobeying that conscience. That doesn't mean that anyone can be saved solely on the basis of strict adherence to the law of conscience. Just because you obey the law of conscience won't save you. Whether judged by law or judged by conscience, all of us stand condemned. All of us are guilty. All of us have transgressed the law. The point here isn't salvation. The point here isn't that the Jew could have been saved by fulfilling the law. And the point isn't that the Gentile could have been saved by fulfilling its conscience. The point here is guilt. The point here is condemnation. The Gentile is guilty 
because he transgressed the conscience, and the Jew is guilty because he transgressed the law. Our only hope of salvation is Jesus Christ. We're not establishing that you can be saved by conscience. And we're not establishing that you can be saved by the works of the law. We're establishing that you don't have any hope of salvation outside of Jesus Christ. We're establishing that you can't save yourself. You, you, you've transgressed. You've got, a, you've got a system of right and wrong that was built into your heart and you've knowingly violated it. On the basis of your own rationalization, you decided that you got an exception because of something that happened in your life and you violated it. You can't save yourself because you're not a good judge of your own character. You're not a good judge of what's right and what's wrong. Your judgment isn't like God's judgment. It isn't based on truth. It's based on your rationalization. You decide what you think is right. That'll never save you. No one will be saved outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who've never heard the gospel have still violated the law of conscience and they need a Savior. They're sinners. They need a Savior. And, and the Jew that had the law, he's violated the law. He still needs a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. He came. He lived the only perfect life that has ever been lived and that will ever be lived. And he died on the cross and that perfect blood, that precious blood that flowed down Calvary's tree, that's what saves us from our sins. That's what saves us from having transgressed the law. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away a multitude of sin. Amen? Thankful for his sacrifice. I'm thankful for his blood. I'm thankful for the cross. So the point in all this is not to establish some way of salvation in conscience or some way of salvation in the law. The point of this is to establish that you don't have any hope of salvation outside of Jesus Christ. You've got to rely on him. You've got to come to him. You've got to turn your heart over to him. You can't save yourself. So Romans chapter 1 indicates that if the Gentile will worship God and seek him to the extent of their knowledge of him through, through conscience and through nature, that doesn't save them. But God will lead them to a saving knowledge of him. I got an example from Scripture. Cornelius was a good man who sought God, who gave alms, who prayed daily, who'd done everything he knew to do. Guess what? He wasn't saved but an angel came and sent a Joppa for one named Peter and let him come preach to you and let him come tell you about Jesus Christ and let him come declare the gospel to you. And when Peter came and preached to Cornelius and his household, while he was still preaching, the Holy Ghost fell on them just like it fell on the apostles on the day of Pentecost in the upper room and he was filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That was the only way he could be saved. So if man obeys the knowledge of God that's demonstrated to him in nature, follows his heart and conscience, that won't save him. 
but God will lead him to a place where somebody will preach to him or somebody will reach to him or he'll come to that. Maybe he picks up a Bible somewhere in a hotel room somewhere and begins to read and understand and God speaks into his heart. There's hope there that he's led to salvation. His only source of salvation is going to be the cross of Calvary. It's going to be Jesus Christ. There's no other way to be saved. Amen? Jesus said it himself. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Now verse 12 at the beginning of today pointed out that sin is the cause of death. Sin is transgression of the law. It's breaking the law of God. Whether one sins against the law of conscience or against that supernaturally revealed law of God that God gave to Moses, it doesn't matter. When man transgresses the law, he will die. When he sins, he's going to die. That's the wages of sin is death. So the Gentile, though he lacks the divinely given law of God, that which was so important to this arrogant Jew that is, that is in Paul's mind arguing against him, it doesn't matter. The Gentile is not without hope. He was not without guidance. His conscience bears witness of him to him that there is a right and there is a wrong. And he cannot say, I did not have the law, therefore I did not know what was right. He can't say, well, I can be saved because I didn't know the difference. Because he knew the difference. It was written on his heart. Any more than the Jew can say, well, because I had the law, I'm saved. See, the Gentile and the Jew are condemned on the same basis. They're condemned on the basis of what they did, not what they knew. Does that make sense? I've got to quit asking whether or not it makes sense because it really doesn't change a thing. <laughs> Verse 16 says, it's a bad thing. You listen to yourself preach, and I don't do it very often, but I, last week I sat down and listened to last week's lesson on Monday, and, and the one thing that stuck out to me was I kept saying, does this make sense? And I told myself, I'm going to quit saying, does this make sense? And here I am saying it again. It doesn't. I, I'm glad that it makes sense. It's the Word of God, my friend. God's not, I'm, gonna stand, I'm not going to stand before God and say, well, this didn't make sense to me. Amen. <laughs> it's the Word of God. This is truth. Amen? Verse 16. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So verse 16 introduces the fifth principle of divine judgment. Judgment's coming on that day. When God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. The fifth, judge, the fifth principle of the divine judgment is that God's judgment will uncover the secrets of men. We can't hide anything from God. The judgment of God will uncover even the most secret of sins in our life. And God will judge those secret things. The only way to cover sin is to put it under the blood of Jesus Christ. The only way to, to, to get your sin concealed or covered is to put it underneath the blood of Jesus Christ. You, you can keep a secret from your spouse. 
You can keep a secret from your friends and your family and your coworkers and your boss, and, and you, you can keep a secret from everybody around you, but you can't keep a secret from God. He knows everything. He knows all the things that are going on. He knows what happens behind closed doors. He knows what happens when nobody else is watching you, and he's going to judge you on the basis of that knowledge. Nothing can be kept hidden from him on the day of judgment. We, we may be able to present a respectable front to the world. We may be able to come to church and look holy and act holy and be all pious and sing the right songs and dress right and go through the right motions. And, and, and everybody on the, in the church may think that we're holy. But if we've got some secret sin hidden in our life that nobody else knows about, it can remain hidden from all the people around us, but it is not hidden from God. God knows. Now, we, we fare well with our friends and with our church family and with our coworkers and associates and all that by acting holy and by living holy, and everybody thinks we're righteous, but God knows better. And you're not pulling the wool over his eyes. And when you stand on, on judgment day and when you stand before him, there's not going to be all that facade of your righteousness to conceal your sinfulness. He's going to judge even the secret sins. He's going to judge all things, whether they're hidden from men or not. The only hope we have is the precious. We've all done things that we don't want anybody else to know about. The only hope we have is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. Hiding a matter, concealing a sin, doesn't make it okay. The only way to take care of sin is to put it under the blood of Jesus Christ. His death, the cross of Calvary, the blood that he shed, that's the only hope that we have of salvation for the entire world. That's it. The blood of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us here that God will perform all of his judgments on that day when God shall judge the secrets of men. He's going to do it by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. He is God made flesh. He is God made touchable, knowable, he is God declared. Jesus Christ, no man has seen God at any time, but Jesus has declared him. He has made him visible. And so God will judge us by Jesus Christ or through Jesus Christ. Now that's important. The saints and the wicked, the saved and the lost, the sinner and, and those that have been washed in the blood of Jesus are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and our judge will be the one who died for us. Our judge is going to be the one who gave his life for our sins. Now, on that basis, we can rest assured that he's done everything that needed to be done to save us, that he, he is our advocate, that he is the one that is trying to save us from our sins. Our judge, the one that will judge us, is also the one that will defend us. But we can also rest assured that since he's done so much to save us, we can't expect to walk into judgment and get by 
with having abused the grace of God. We can't expect to stand before his throne, the one who died for us, having used his death on the cross as an excuse to continue in the same kind of life that he saved us from. See, the very presence of Jesus Christ as our judge will condemn us if in having been delivered from sin we continued in it. Amen? So he is our judge. He is our advocate. He is our defender. But ultimately he is our judge. And on that day we stand before him. I'm going to plead the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? I'm going to plead the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't want to stand before him and say, well, I've used your blood as an excuse to continue. Listen, if he saved you, he saved you from something. If he saved you, he saved you from some kind of a life. And you you aren't saved from something so you can continue in that something. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I'm going to make fun of myself till I quit saying it. You've been saved from something. Amen? That means you got there's a change that takes place. In a little bit, we're going to baptize Sabrina in the name of Jesus Christ. She's going to come out of the water, and God's going to fill her with the baptism of the Holy Ghost right there in that tank. Amen? She's going to walk in the newness of life. That means things change. That means today's first day of a brand new life. That means that from now on, things aren't the way they used to be. There's a change that takes place. Amen. God didn't save me just so I go on and live the way I've been living. God saved me so he could change me. And starting today, every step takes me closer to being what he called me to be. Amen. I'm thankful for the blood of Jesus. I'm thankful for the call that comes to my heart to repent of my sins and be baptized in that name. And I want that power of God to work in me. The Bible calls it perfecting us, causing us to grow more and more like him, to be what he called us to be. Amen? Now, Paul also said that that judgment will come according to my gospel better translation would be as my do- as my gospel declares but the interesting thing there isn't necessarily how the function of the gospel it's that Paul calls it my gospel now you could read that and you say well then Paul's saying he had some private interpretation it was his private gospel that's not what he means at all what it means is that Paul had such an intense Burden and love for the gospel that he had, he possessed ownership of it. This is my gospel. This, this is my hope. This, this isn't just some thing that I talk about that that somehow separate this is this is a part of who I am this is a part of what I am this this gospel of Jesus Christ it isn't just some plan of salvation this is my hope this is my gospel this is what I possess there's a, there's a certain sense of ownership in the gospel of Jesus Christ he he identifies himself with it listen we would all do well 
to get that kind of possession of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to get that kind of ownership of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to identify ourselves so thoroughly with the message of the cross of Calvary that it becomes ours personally. My gospel. Not going to be judged by the gospel. I'm going to be judged by my gospel. Amen. Not going to be, this isn't just the hope of the world. This is my hope of salvation. This isn't just some thing that, this is mine. It belongs to me. It's a part of who I am. I so have uh, embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ that it becomes a part of me. Amen. The connection of judgment with the gospel is also something that we shouldn't overlook. We're apt to set the two in opposition against each other and to think that one excludes the other. But the gospel doesn't exclude the thought of judgment. Rather, it demands judgment. The gospel, it demands that there's judgment. Unless judgment is a reality, unless there's such a thing as the harsh judgment of God, unless there's such a thing as the terrible wrath of God poured out on sinners, unless there's something for a sinner to be saved from, then there's no good news in the gospel. The power of the gospel, the judgment may be the antithesis of the gospel, but the power of the gospel is in the judgment. There's something to be saved from. There's something to be delivered from. Amen. There's a judgment of God that awaits those that continue in sin. There remains only a certain fearful looking forward to of the judgment of God. That's the way it was put in Hebrews. Amen. There's something to avoid. The gospel is inseparably linked to judgment. We're saved by Jesus Christ from the judgment of God. So if there's nothing to be saved from, then there's no good news in the gospel. And because judgment is real and the grace of God is real, the two are connected. By God's grace, he saves us from judgment. When, when faith and obedience work together in our lives, they deliver us from the condemnation of our sins. The grace of God saves us from a very real and terrible judgment. To reject the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, to reject the gospel message of salvation, to not respond to the preaching of the gospel with a sincere plea, men and brethren, what shall we do? Or to not do as Peter said to do is to place yourself in jeopardy of the terrible judgment of God. The gospel sets you free from that judgment. The kind of faith that saves you from that judgment is the kind of faith that does. Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter's answer was repent. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In the end, Paul's discourse on judgment and on the judgment of God brings us to the conclusion that nothing in our life is hidden, that we don't have any excuses, that there's no out except the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
It's the only way we can be saved. God knows everything about us. We can't hide anything from him. And we'll only be saved by the blood of Jesus. Would you stand with me?